is Our American Stories, and this next story comes from Lily Danzinger. And this piece was originally written in Psychology Today for her mother and father. I was eight the first time my father and I spoke about heroin. He was working on a sculpture, sitting cross-legged on the floor with his curly hair hanging down over his face. I stood at his bookshelf, perusing the thick art volumes. Tucked between the pages of one, I found a piece of tinfoil folded into a square and marked with small circular burns. I'd never seen one like it, but I had a hunch this peculiar object had something to do with his drug habit. I asked, Papa, what's this? He frowned in the same way he would when I declined to try out a new drawing technique, but I knew I wasn't the source of his disappointment this time. Some ten seconds ticked by before he finally answered, That's from doing drugs. But it's from a long time ago. It must have gotten lost in that book. There was another pause, and guilt must have overcome him, because he then confessed that the tinfoil square wasn't actually from that long ago, though he assured me that he had stopped using drugs again and was doing better this time. Smelling of tobacco and plaster, he planted a kiss on the top of my head and went back to chiseling a block of wood. I knew from a young age that my parents were heroin addicts. It doesn't take the world's smartest kid to figure out the purpose of a methadone clinic, or to decipher loud, tearful arguments about how it's time to stop, muffled by only a thin wall when you're supposed to be asleep. Growing up where and when I did, in New York's East Village and San Francisco's Mission District in the early 90s, their predicament was common. Plenty of people were slowly caving in on themselves, their skin growing sallow and their eyes becoming vacant as they were eaten alive from within by drugs. But despite knowing that my parents struggled with addiction, I had only a patchy understanding of what that meant. Either for them or for the hollow-eyed strangers on the street and in the clinic waiting room. I'd picked up enough from movies and foreboding commercials to know that drugs were bad for you, but I understood it in the same abstract way I knew broccoli was good for you. I couldn't really differentiate between my parents' drug problem and all their other grown-up problems, like making the rent and keeping the house clean. In the years after the tinfoil incident, after my parents split up and my mother successfully kicked her heroin habit, my father and I had an ongoing coded dialogue about his efforts to do the same. He would tell me that he was healthy, which was his way of saying that he was clean. He couldn't bring himself to be completely frank about his struggle, but he knew that I worried about it and he wanted to reassure me. The fact that he told me how he was doing, no matter how euphemistically, made me trust him. It made me feel even more invested as I rooted for him from the sidelines of this invisible battle. I believed in him so intensely that I was probably the only person who didn't immediately assume drugs were involved when he died. I was 12 and living in upstate New York with my mother. He had gone to live in a cabin in the Northern California Redwoods to be in nature and away from drugs. He died in his sleep. Even though I was across the country when it happened, I felt certain that my father was clean because of the postcards he'd sent me, always mentioning how well he was doing and how he couldn't wait for me to visit so we could camp out under the ancient majestic trees. The autopsy report eventually confirmed that there was no heroin in my father's blood when he died. The coroner couldn't determine a cause of death, which left many open questions, but I had the answer to the one question that mattered to me. 
As far as I knew, the only way heroin could become fatal was through an overdose, and I took the absence of the drug in his system to mean that his death was unrelated to his many years of drug abuse. I felt vindicated. I spent the next decade mourning my father, telling everyone what a great artist he'd been and how much he'd taught me about life, literature, and language. That trendy was a bad word, for instance, and overusing like makes a person sound ignorant. My father was the beloved lost, blameless as a saint. While I sprayed the anger I felt over his loss everywhere else, blasting it like buckshot from a shotgun at my mother, teachers and classmates, and later at truant officers and cops. I was furious at the world for taking him from me. When I hit my 20s, I realized that I didn't actually know that much about my father beyond my rosy memories, so I started reaching out to his old friends. The hazy view of heroin I'd had as a child became sharper and more detailed. I learned that he'd been using it with far more regularity and for a longer period of time than I'd ever known. I eventually came to face the obvious. The damage done by poisoning yourself for almost two decades doesn't instantly reverse the moment you stop. A 43-year-old man's organs don't just shut down inexplicably. There may not have been heroin in his system when he died, but that didn't mean heroin wasn't the cause of his death. I started to see his death not as some freak occurrence, but as something he let happen. And I was furious. Letting myself rage at him, at the memory of him, was like releasing a breath I'd held for almost 20 years. As a child, I'd thought of addiction as a big bad demon my parents were fighting to escape so that we could all live happily ever after. Now, I had to wonder how they let themselves get into that position in the first place. How could they have looked at the peaceful face of their sleeping child in one room, then closed the door and gotten high in another? My father was a good parent in many ways. He read me Grimm's fairy tales and Greek myths, cherished my every piece of art, and encouraged me to voice my thoughts loudly and clearly. But all the while, he failed his number one duty to me to do everything he could to make sure that he'd stay in my life. The central requirement of being a parent is to be present. All the rest is a matter of style and degree. You can't be a good parent or even a bad parent if you're not there at all. He hadn't really died by accident, I came to realize. He'd committed a suicide by neglect, like a lie of omission. In a way, feeling my anger at him has lessened its power over me. The story we often hear about the loved ones of addicts, a pat tale of anger resolving into forgiveness, doesn't acknowledge the complexity of feelings layered upon each other, all of them shifting continually with time. I don't know if or when I'll ever fully forgive my father, but that's okay. Anger hasn't diminished my love for him or my appreciation of everything that was wonderful about him. It's just made him feel more real. It's let me see him with bracing clarity. Not only as the adored father I lost too soon, but as a flawed human being who I can now mourn more fully and honestly. And what a beautiful and thoughtful piece. Thank you, Lily, for what you wrote, and thank you for sharing it with us. Lily Danziger's story, her mother and father's story, here on Our American Stories.
it's milk, it's bread, it's the stuff on your list, it's the strange little snacks you end up buying instead. This is Lee Habib, and we continue our American stories. And there's a reason why Trader Joe's has become one of America's favorite grocery stores. The store draws hordes of shoppers on the strength of its affordable store brand offerings, which rotate often and include everything from coffee and booze to healthy meals, unexpected snacks, incredible cheese, and internationally focused entrees that have helped evolve the American palate. It has legions of devoted fans, and even haters can't help but find something to love within its aisles. Here's Greg Hengler, a real lover, with the story of Trader Joe's. Trader Joe's, the surfy, laid-back grocery store chain with a cult-like following, known for its cheap prices and floral print-clad staff, has been a household name for years. When you break it down to square footage, Trader Joe's is actually selling more than double its competitors like grocery store chain Whole Foods. And when it comes to the traditional, we have everything and more mega grocery store chains, the small Trader Joe's locations do more than simply offer competition. They outwork and outsell these Goliaths of grocery. The question is, how? After all, Trader Joe's focuses on a unique selection of products under their private label rather than a large amount of them. They don't sell the same old things we normally see. No Lay's, no Heinz, no General Mills, etc. And whereas a traditional grocery store stocks upwards of 40,000 units, Trader Joe's runs around a mere 4,000. In order to make this clear, I went to my local Kroger and did some aisle counting and compared it with Trader Joe's scaled-down approach to shopping. Kroger stocks 285 varieties of cookies, Trader Joe's 154, Kroger 144 pasta sauces, TJ's 14, Kroger 75 iced teas, TJ's 9, Kroger stocks 275 cereals, TJ's 39, Kroger 44 olive oils, TJ's 14, and Kroger stocks 40 toothpastes, TJ's just 4. So back to the question, how does the little guy Trader Joe's compete at such a high level? Psychologist and Trader Joe's enthusiast Barry Schwartz coined the term the paradox of choice and quite literally wrote the book on it, The Paradox of Choice, Why More is Less. Here he is to explain what he means. All of this choice has two effects, two negative effects on people. One effect, paradoxically, is that it produces paralysis rather than liberation. With so many options to choose from, people find it very difficult to choose at all. So that's one effect. The second effect is that even if we manage to overcome the paralysis and make a choice, we end up less satisfied with the result of the choice than we would be if we had fewer options to choose from. And there are several reasons for this. One of them is that with a lot of different salad dressings to choose from, if you buy one and it's not perfect, and you know what salad dressing is, it's easy to imagine that you could have made a different choice that would have been better. And what happens is this imagined alternative 
induces you to regret the decision you made, and this regret subtracts from the satisfaction you get out of the decision you made, even if it was a good decision. I had no particular expectations when they only came in one flavor. When they came in a hundred flavors, one of them should have been perfect. And what I got was good, but it wasn't perfect. Finally, one consequence of buying a bad-fitting pair of jeans when there is only one kind to buy is that when you are dissatisfied and you ask why, who's responsible? The answer is clear. The world is responsible. What could you do? When there are hundreds of different styles of jeans available and you buy one that is disappointing, and you ask, why, who's responsible? It is equally clear that the answer to the question is you. You could have done better. With a hundred different kinds of genes on display, there is no excuse for failure. And so when people make decisions, and even though the results of the decisions are good, they feel disappointed about them, they blame themselves. Clinical depression has exploded in the industrial world in the last generation. I believe a significant, not the only, but a significant contributor to this explosion of depression and also suicide is that people have experiences that are disappointing because their standards are so high, and then when they have to explain these experiences to themselves, they think they're at fault. And so the net result is that we do better at, in general, objectively, and we feel worse. There's no question that some choice is better than none, but it doesn't follow from that that more choice is better than some choice. There's some magical amount. I don't know what it is. I'm pretty confident that we have long since passed the point where options improve our welfare. Trader Joe's understands what Barry is saying. And as Barry has said himself regarding that magical number, I think Trader Joe's is the best example of how the world should be constructed. The man responsible for all of this is the original Joe, the guy behind the beloved grocery store chain who founded the company emphasizing quality over quantity. And that quality starts with the more than 41,000 employees known as crew members. After all, the core of any business is customer service, which Trader Joe's more than excels at. Data science professionals have ranked Trader Joe's number one in customer preference for two years running, with Costco coming in at number two and Amazon in third. The brand remains simple, with no online store, no loyalty programs, no special card to swipe, and no sales. Here's Trader Joe's Vice President of Marketing Product, Matt Salone, Marketing Director, Tara Miller, and Joe himself, discussing the company's origins on the newly launched Trader Joe's podcast. So it's 1958, and Joe Colombe, Joe, he takes over a small chain of convenience stores around the L.A. area. These, these are called pronto markets. The whole idea is fast. It's pronto. It's quick, right? And they're convenience stores before we really even know what convenience stores are. This is before 7-Eleven becomes the thing that it is. These are little tiny corner markets. The kind of place where you could get anything from, say, a pack of gum to some pantyhose to a box of ammunition. I spent 10 years running pronto markets. Towards the end of that, I really did not like the convenience store formula. Joe is the classic entrepreneur. 
Joe's really good at looking for, finding, and developing opportunities. The demographics were changing in the United States because of the GI Bill of Rights, which was the largest experiment in mass higher education in the history of the human race. And I thought that these people would want something different. The GI Bill of Rights, passed in 1944, provided benefits such as grants for school tuition, job training, and hiring privileges for World War II vets. So after realizing that competition from a burgeoning chain called 7-Eleven would likely drive it into the ground, Joe decided to introduce a new concept. The tiki trend was in full swing. So in 1967, Joe opened the first Trader Joe's in Pasadena, California, a play on the name of popular tiki restaurant chain Trader Vic's. That first store is still there in the same spot, but the chain now has over 487 locations nationwide. By 1972, Joe knew that the average American was traveling more and developing tastes for foods that were impossible to find at the average supermarket. So, along with the store's cedar-planked walls and Hawaiian shirt-wearing crew members, he rolled out a new product. Here again is Tara and Joe. The 1972 breakthrough. Not to be confused with the 1972 break-in. That was Washington. This was Los Angeles. Different story. Granola. Not just any granola, though. This was the first private label Trader Joe's product. And after granola, Joe never looked back. You don't have to worry about all of the soft drink salesmen coming in Fred Salesman coming in and the potato chip people coming in. You're just focused. And that solves so many problems. (laughs) Joe was also a big fan of California wines. And the original Trader Joe's sold literally every California wine that was available, helping put California wines on the map. And what a story, the Trader Joe's story, the paradox of choice, and so much more. We'll learn how Trader Joe's becomes a force nationwide in retailing and in loyalty here on Our American Story. For more, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. It's milk, it's bread, it's the stuff on your list. It's the strange little snacks you end up buying instead. It's booze, it's nuts, it's pills, it's peas, it's the peanut butter made of sunflower seeds. It's a ball of ice cream that's covered with flour. It's the shelves that are empty by the dinner hour. It's the beautiful moms in their yoga clothes. It's our favorite place, it's that store Trader Joe's. And we continue with the story of Trader Joe's here on Our American Stories. Let's return to Greg Hengler and the rest of the story. I think it's fair to say most companies go through CEOs like we might go through a pair of shoes. You know, it's like, oh, the earnings were down this quarter. We need to replace our leadership. The wind is blowing west. We need to change our leadership. Well, it's interesting to think about a business that is a little over 60 years, a little over 50 years as Trader Joe's, 
and having through that entire stretch of time three CEOs. Um, that's weird in the best possible way. And so Joe, the founder, is leading the company for the first 30 years. And he is central casting, dyed-in-the-wool, entrepreneurial spirit. It's the quality of the people which sets Trader Joe's apart. Forget the merchandise, forget all the other stuff. It's the quality of the people in the store. In 1973, a trip to Trader Joe's would have offered you many items that you won't find today, like pantyhose, which was sold until 1978. In 1977, they expanded their private label with fun names like Trader Mings, Trader Giados, and Pilgrim Joe, and introduced the first reusable canvas grocery bag. In 1979, Joe sold Trader Joe's to Theo Albrecht, Albrecht's company, Aldi Nord, still operates Trader Joe's in the U.S. By the late 1980s, the chain had expanded into Northern California. In 1993, the first Arizona location opened. In 1995, brought expansion into the Pacific Northwest. In 96, the first two East Coast locations opened outside Boston. Between 1990 and 2001, the number of store locations quintupled and revenue shot through the roof as they rolled out an average of 10 new items per week. During this time, they also introduced supermarket innovations like putting handles on paper bags. In 2002, they introduced one of their most notorious products, a $1.99 bottle of wine produced by a guy named Charles Shaw, a West Point graduate and it came to be known as Two Buck Chuck. Here's wine expert and wine creator, Charles Shaw himself, being given a blind taste test of Two Buck Chuck. So let's pour it out. So we got it. So the first thing we're gonna look for is aroma. A fine wine has actual qualities of the grape and you can smell the fruitiness of the grape. And frankly, I can smell some fruit in this wine. This is amazing. Okay. I'm going to taste it. First thing I'm going to do is put it under my tongue. And I picked up some decent acidity. It's not bad. It's a little dry. It's got some tannin. And then I'm just going to put it in my mouth and see what I think. I think this is a very satisfying wine. Some consumers make the mistake of always equating quality with price. That was not the case at the 28th Annual International Eastern Wine Competition. With 2,300 wines in the competition, judges awarded a prestigious double gold medal to a $1.99 bottle of California wine, the 2002 Charles Shaw Shiraz. And it would happen again in 2005 at the Cal Expo competition, and then go on to win other awards in Orange County. Trader Joe's has sold one billion bottles of Charles Shaw since 2002. Here's Chris Condit, the category manager for wine at Trader Joe's. I'm gonna give you the secret to Trader Joe's here. So far they've all tasted like Tang, but not the good version if there is one. One thing that we do that sets us apart is we have a tasting panel. There's a lot of wine out there. There really are hundreds of thousands of wines available in the market. 
We carry about 500 in our stores. So we're tasting every day, literally every day. It's got the acid, I mean, it's got the color, the acid. It's a little more savory than mm-hmm. fruity. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty good, though. You're going to tell me. It's Russian River. So it would be Trader Joe's 2016 Russian River Petite Syrah. Everybody had a chance to try it, think about it? Who'd like to see that come in? Excellent. And lastly, and most... The source of the wine for our various private label and control label programs might change over time, but the wines are always going to be great because we get to pick and choose. We don't have to carry every wine. We don't have to always repeat that exact same thing every year. If it's not good, we don't think it's great value, we don't love the wine, we don't buy it. Trader Joe's Frozen Isle is another innovative wonder of the grocery world compared to the Frozen Isle in traditional grocery stores, which is flailing with only 6% of total store sales. Here's Warren Thayer, who runs the trade magazine Frozen and Refrigerated Buyer, explaining the poor numbers in traditional grocery stores. 46% of shoppers on the typical trip when they spend over $100 don't even set foot in the frozen food department. According to Phil Lempert, a food industry analyst, he says this is due to the predictable packaging of the once-novelty frozen dinners introduced in the 50s and the frosty barrier of the frozen selection. The red lean cuisine, the green healthy choice. It's sort of like boring. That glass door, it really creates a fence. You don't see those glass doors at Trader Joe's, which has open freezers. The problem with opening that ice-cold door at your traditional supermarket means you've already committed to purchasing something, which doesn't lead to much product discovery. Compare that to Trader Joe's low-level open freezers that brings shoppers physically closer to the products. This allows the freedom to check out new products with less effort, more leisurely, and without the blast of cold air and subsequent frosted glass door. It's fun to go through that case to see what you're going to find. Piggybacking on what Lempert said before about the unattractive appeal from the predictable packaging of traditional brands, Trader Joe's, on the other hand, has its own private label. They buy straight from the supplier, which ultimately cuts cost and leads to cheaper products for the customer. The products themselves are colorful, quirky, and have a consistent branding. Here's brand building expert Denise Liang. Okay, so it's usually um, kind of hand-drawn or it's not looking like it's, um, you know, computer-generated, right? Um, They're usually caricatures, and then there's some descriptive copy. And all of that, I think, helps the person, you know, the shopper kind of see how this product fits into their needs. There's an element of discovery, like finding something, finding a new product you didn't know existed. David Ziegler Vall, the former head of packaging design at Trader Joe's, said that the hand-drawn images on the products evokes elements of trust and a human touch. Also a sense of being locally produced, handcrafted, and small batch. Trader Joe's has cultivated a level of trust that is really hard to manufacture. Trader Joe's found success by anticipating the needs of its customers, in many cases knowing what the customer would want even before they did, and selling it to them at a low price and in a fun atmosphere. Joe, while still alive, is no longer involved with the company, but his legacy 
is set in stone. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job, as always, to Greg Hengler, and I think he's hoping he'll get some free passes at Trader Joe's for this, and who knows? You never know. Um, but my goodness, one billion bottles of two-buck chuck. And by the way, what they've done and how they've mastered the supply chain, the branding, the artwork, it's just a miracle. And it's Trader Joe's near where my sister and my dad live with my sister's husband. And I wander in there always shaking my head that I won't buy anything. And in the end, I always do. Trader Joe's story, unique retailing story in this country here on Our American Story. continue with our American stories and now it's time for our rule of law series where we bring you stories about what happens when the rule of law is either present or absent in our lives. And here's Alex Cortez with today's story. Harvey Silverglade is one of the top lawyers in America whose mission is to protect our constitutional freedoms and he's the author of Three Felonies a Day, How the Feds Target the Innocent. One of the major differences between state and federal criminal justice systems is this. Most state systems follow the common law rule. This is an ancient, inherited from the British, ancient system that says as follows. In order to be convicted of a crime, you have to be shown not only to have violated the statute, but you have to be shown to have intentionally and knowingly, there are the words, intentionally and knowingly violated a known legal obligation. What this means is the prosecutor has to prove to the jury beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant acted with an intent to break the law. And that is a protection that was built into the Anglo-American legal system. It has been around in Britain for centuries. It's been around in this country since the founding. But the federal system is different. In the federal system, you don't have to be shown to have understood the law. You have to have been shown to engage in the conduct you engaged in knowingly and intentionally. But of course, that's true of everything that we do except maybe what we do in our sleep. But it doesn't matter whether you thought you were doing something lawful. And that's how the feds are able to get so many people convicted. Whereas in the state, you actually have to have been shown had criminal intent. That difference between the state systems is the reason I did not write a book about innocent people getting convicted in the state system. Some innocent people do get convicted, but it's typically because the jury believes government witnesses rather than defense witnesses. Did you rape this person? No, not rape this person, but you have witnesses that you did rape this person. Did you commit the bank robbery? No. Either the teller gets believed or you get believed. But it's obvious that 
rape is a crime. It's obvious that bank robbery is a crime. It's obvious that arson is a crime. But in the federal system, all that has to be proven is that you did what you did and you did it knowingly and intentionally. It does not have to be shown that you should have understood or you did understand that what you were doing was a crime. And that's how they convict so many people who thought that they were acting perfectly innocently. And that's where I get my subtitle of how the feds target the innocent. Including a guy named Joseph Edward Morissette. Morissette is a Supreme Court case that every law student studies because it is such a paradigmatic case for the excesses of federal prosecution. Unfortunately, it is honored more in the breach these days. It is not followed, even though it is studied by law students. It's sort of an irony. But Morissette was this fellow who would go through particularly wooded areas, areas which had been used for target practices by the military in particular. And he would collect spent cartridges. The spent cartridges were useful, were valuable for the value of the scrap, but he would go through these areas and he would pick up from the ground lead and other metals that were used for target practice. And he would then sell the metal and he would make a fairly good living doing that. He was indicted because these materials were technically on federal property or technically belonged to the federal government. Mind you, the government was not going to be use them for anything. But Marr said he was indicted because this was technically government property. The charge against Morissette was that he, quote, did unlawfully, willfully, and knowingly steal property of the United States. And yet, the judge wouldn't let Morissette's lawyer argue that he didn't knowingly steal, that he didn't even know that he was on federal property, and that there was no notice that what looked like abandoned cartridges weren't technically abandoned, even though they actually were. How is that a system of justice, a rule of law? that a defendant can't refute the direct charge against them. But because federal law apparently doesn't care about you not knowing that you did something wrong, I guess a defendant can't make that argument. But sitting here as a non-lawyer normal person, it seems like you shouldn't be able to charge someone for knowingly doing something if the knowing part isn't on the approved list of what can be debated in court. But perhaps the government has a more enlightened version of common sense than we do. The problem, the problem in a case like Morissette, the problem in so many of these federal criminal prosecutions is the jury cannot get the whole story because technically it doesn't matter. If there's something that is not technically, legally a defense, the prosecutor will object to the admission of the evidence and you're not allowed to present it. So juries don't get a full picture of what the defendant did and what his state of mind was. And, and that's 
That's because the rules of evidence are so narrow and in some cases so artificial that jurors don't get a full picture. Um, often, I think to myself, in the days when I did a lot of jury trials, I think to myself, if only this jury knew what I know, they would be so sympathetic to my client. But they don't end up knowing that much because the rules of evidence only allow the admissibility of technically relevant evidence rather than background information that the juries really should know in order to judge whether or not this defendant really acted in a way that was malicious or had criminal intent. So the system is skewed terribly against the defendant. Federal trials are not meant to paint full and accurate pictures. They're meant to give juries a very narrow, narrowly focused view that is usually the prosecutor's way of looking at what happened and why it's a crime. So that's the reason why the system being so unfair, that's the reason why 97% of defendants, why they're convicted at trial, or much more commonly why they plead guilty and just throw in the towel, even if they don't believe they've committed a crime. The case made it up to the Supreme Court, which decided the grant review, and he won that case in the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court said that this, this stuff was abandoned. He didn't commit a crime. This was abandoned. It's not theft of government property. And that case is, to me, I had a, a chapter on it in, in three felonies a day because what it demonstrates is how the feds overreach and how they use statutes to convict people who act in perfectly innocent ways. It didn't matter that Morissette had no idea he was committing a crime. It didn't matter to the prosecutors that he did absolutely no harm to anybody. He did not really steal government property. The government abandoned this stuff. And yet, the feds went after him. Why in the world the feds would utilize resources of the Department of Justice to go after a guy like Morissette? You have to ask, you scratch your head. And of course, the answer is that these prosecutors don't have enough useful work to do. They sit around all day to figure out who they can get and how they can get them. And they so often focus on people whose conduct is innocent and who simply violated, arguably violated some statute that no normal human being would have assumed covered the activity in which they engaged. So to me, it is the paradigmatic example of the problem. And Barr said one is case, but it doesn't seem to have stopped the practice that the court dealt with. You were listening to Harvey Silverglate, and he's the author of Three Felonies a Day, How the Feds Target the Innocent, and you can buy it at Amazon.com. It's a must-read, because this could be any of us, folks, especially if we work in businesses that have anything to do with a large federal bureaucracy. You are truly committing at least a few crimes a day that you don't know you're committing, and any knock on the door could ruin your life. And again, with no knowledge of committing a crime, how do you charge people with a crime? 
And I know you're wondering, listening, why didn't the why didn't the Fed just tell the guy to stop doing what he was doing and he was on federal land? It's just an obscenity. And by the way, there's an extraordinary bipartisan group of lawmakers, from Republican Ted Cruz to Democrat Sheila Jackson Lee, who've gotten together to propose a common sense reform called mens rea, which means guilty mind, and that you should only be charged with a crime if you knew that it was a crime. It's a bedrock of the rule of law in Western civilization, actually, but one that's tragically been missing in the federal justice system. Our rule of law story, the Morissette case, here on Our American Story. This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Dan Fogelberg's Same Old Ang Sign. And this is our Story of the Song segment. And we're not going to tell a story of this song, though it's a heck of a song. And we tell stories of songs that have a story themselves. And by the way, the opening lyrics of that song you just heard, Met my old lover in the grocery store. The snow was falling on Christmas Eve. You want to hear what happens, don't you? And we've all been there, too, meeting that person that we broke up with, that person we went to school with, maybe wanting to avoid, maybe wanting to see. In a canon of personal songs, leader of the band stands out as one of Dan Fogelberg's most treasured. The song, which originally appeared on the singer-songwriter's 1981 album, The Innocent Age, is Fogelberg's loving tribute to his musician father, Lawrence. Fogelberg wrote this in 2003 about his dad. He was a musician, an educator, and band leader. I was so gratified that I was able to give him that song before he passed on. Fogelberg's dad died in August of 1982, but not before this hit song made him a celebrity with numerous media interviewers interested in him as its inspiration. Here's Dan Fogelberg speaking about his hit single, Leader of the Band, in 1991. I think I could only have written one song in my life. It would have been leader of the band. Because what that meant to my father and to me, there's no way I could quantify that or even explain it. Um, my father passed away over 10 years ago now, and he, he got to hear that song. He got to see this, enjoy the success of that song. People were calling him on the phone and interviewing him in his last days. You know, who is this man, the leader of the band, you know? And he just, he loved that. And I loved that because I, I respected him so much. I mean, he gave me everything I am, really. My mother and he were both musicians. And the idea of being a living legacy is really the truth. I don't think I'll ever be as accomplished a musician as he was. But um, I've had a different gift. It came to me in a different way. I've been able to reach and touch people with these songs that I write. And that one has probably touched more people more deeply than anything I've ever done. And by the way, don't we all want to have our sons and or daughters speak that way about us? And again, that's why we do these stories, folks, because you don't hear them anywhere else. Vogelberg's music was powerful in its simplicity. He didn't rely on the volume of his voice to convey his emotions. Instead, 
They came through in the soft, tender delivery and his amazing lyrics. Here, for example, is the chorus to leader of the band, in which Fogelberg cherishes and aspires to someday possess the same love and musical ability as his dad. And these are from the song. This is the chorus. The leader of the band is tired and his eyes are growing old, but his blood runs through my instrument and his song is in my soul. My life has been a poor attempt to imitate the man. I'm just a living legacy to the leader of the band. Here's Dan Fogelberg's love letter to his father, Lawrence. song, Dan Fogelberg's tribute to his dad, Lawrence. The story of his song, Dan Fogelberg's story, his father's story, here on Our American Stories. I thank you for the music and your stories of the road. I thank you for the freedom when it came my time to go. I thank you for the kindness and the times when you got tough And Papa, I don't think I said I love you near enough The leader of the band is tired and his eyes are growing old 
But his blood runs through my instrument And his song is in my soul My life has been a poor attempt To imitate the man I'm just a living legacy To the leader of the band I am a living legacy To the leader continue with our American stories and we love bringing you stories from all over this great country and we've been spending some time in Austin, Texas at a place called Community First Village, a 51-acre master plan community that provides affordable, permanent housing and a loving community for men and women who've spent years, often decades, surviving on the streets of Austin. It's easy to appreciate the world-class architecture in this village but it's the people who really make it transformative. Larry Crawford is the guy who fixes anything that breaks in the community, from air conditioners to trucks. And like many Americans whose work is so much more than a day job, Larry works all hours of the day, especially with what he calls his mobile homeless gig, where he goes out to meet folks wherever they are and fix their vehicles so they can keep living in them. Here's Larry on how all of that got started. I've always been a bit of a gearhead. I mean, I had hot rods when I was a kid, when I was a teenager. I built my first car that I legally drove on the street uh, when I had a driver's license, a handmade car. And I like the four-wheelers and the Jeeps and stuff and restored a few old vehicles and, you know, swapped a few motors and just love working on cars and stuff. And then when I come to Austin and I started working at the village, I quickly came to believe that what we do here at the village is the gold standard for coming up with a way to uh, mitigate uh, people living on the streets. And even though I do believe completely that this is the gold standard, there's a lot of demographics, there's a lot of people that we are not reaching. So five years ago, I met this couple. They were on the side of a freeway. um, in South Austin, broke down in an old raggedy motorhome. And I just stopped and asked him if I could help. And, uh, you know, the lady, uh, she was kind of scared of me and she stayed kind of in the back of the motorhome. And the guy was an older fella. And um, he, uh, he's, like, he's like, man, I, the thing just won't start. He said, I think I'm out of gas. And so, and I'm like, well, let me look. I turned the key and it's sitting on empty. I'm like, well, I'm like, I got a gas can in the back of my truck. I said, there's a store about two miles up. I'll go get some gas. I'll come right back. So I, I put some gas in the guy's car and I had like a, a two gallon can and a five gallon can. And so I filled them both up. And, um, and it, of course the thing started right up and they were thrilled and relieved. And, and, uh, 
he said, hey, let me pull right up here. He said, just follow me. He said, I, I, I want to I wanna meet you, you know. So we're on the side of a freeway, and there was a lot of traffic, and it was, it was dicey just putting the gas in there. I was like, I hope I don't get squished by one of these trucks. And uh, so we go up, and he pulls into a little open area off the feeder road, and, and we shook hands, and he thanked me, and and, uh, and we parted ways. And we'll, But I gave him my phone number, uh, although he didn't have a phone. He still doesn't have a phone. And um, that's how... I call it the mobile homeless gig, and uh, so that's how it started, and um, and I've done probably about 90 cars in the last five years, I don't say cars, vehicles. Sometimes it's a school bus, sometimes it's a Honda little four-door car, and sometimes it's a van, sometimes it's a, an old motor home, and, uh, but I only fix things for people that live in their vehicles. So if your car breaks down, don't call me, because uh, I'm busy. Um, and so I, I do all the parts and I do all the labor for free so I don't charge anybody for anything and the people that I've done stuff for have been musicians, they've been artists, they've been elderly, they've been young, they've been brilliant and smart and uh, some of them are stupid as a rock and I'm just like the whole you know spectrum of what people could be and I never I never ask them what got them there. I never judge them on whether, you know, their vehicle smells like marijuana or their vehicle smells like some sort of a cheap whiskey or wine or some other yucky stuff. Uh, I just fix their car and move on. And um, I had one pretty recent that, that happened was um, I got a call from this lady and she had a little small car and uh, the old car, maybe 20, 25 year old car. She was on the side of 35. She's northbound, uh, just coming out of downtown Austin. Car broke down on the side of the road. She had no money, very little gas, and the cops were behind her and they were fixing to have her towed. And she contacted this church in South Austin. It's not a church I go to, but anyhow, so she called this church to ask if there was anybody could help. And, so they gave her my number and she called me and she was crying and you know she was worried she was going to get a ticket because she didn't have any insurance and registration was expired and um and I, she told me where she's at and i'm like i'll be there in a few minutes and it was at the end of the day it was like five o'clock at night and i was already through working anyway so i drive over there and of course the cop was behind her and i pull in front of her car and, and this time she's really crying hard because the cop had already called a tow truck so I went back and uh, asked the cop if he would give me an opportunity to take care of it and he asked me who I was. And, uh, and he had heard of me, he didn't know me, but he had heard of me from some other cops or something. And uh, he said, I'll call off the tow truck and I'll give you an opportunity. And so I knew the immediate threat was gone. So I went over and started looking at the car and, and it didn't take me five minutes to figure out I didn't have the part nor the tools to complete the job. So. I called a tow truck, a company here in Austin that I'd used several times before, and, and uh, they had a truck that was only like two exits away, and so they just came right away, and they towed the car, they asked me where I wanted it, and I just take it to O'Reilly's, it's an auto parts store, the next exit. So we went up there, and, and uh, I bought the part, it cost me $9 for the part to fix this lady's car, and I 
I didn't have all the tools I needed, but the guy in the auto parts store, he was real cool. He's like, just buy everything you need to fix the car. And when you're through fixing them, bring them all back in. I'll give you your money back. And he said, we kind of do this tool rental thing here. You just pay for it and bring it back and I'll give you your money back. I'm like, okay, fine. So it literally cost me nine bucks. And, you know, in total, maybe a couple of hours. And, uh, you know, that lady's level of stress was just off the charts because she thought her car was going to get towed. And she knew if she got it towed, she would lose it forever. And, you know, I asked myself if I were going to be homeless, if I had a choice between sleeping in my van or my car or sleeping in an alley or under a bridge, which would I prefer? Well, obviously you'd rather sleep in your car or in your van because at least you have a door you can lock and keep some of your stuff from getting ripped off or rained on or whatever. And so, yeah, that's how that kind of started. And some weeks I do one or two, some weeks I do eight or nine. And um, so that's kind of how that goes or that got started. And since Larry's been at this for a while and word has gotten around, others have been inspired to help however they can. The tow truck driver that showed up on that, that little car um, is a big old Hispanic fella. He uh, kind of looked like a, he was like a linebacker from a football team from like 20 years ago. He was this older guy. And uh, anyhow, he had heard about, you know, me fixing people's cars. And, and, uh, and he, uh, you know, when we first got there, he just went straight to work, hooking up the winches and things to, you know, be able to pull the car up onto the back of the flatbed truck he had. So we get to the auto parts store and he's unloading. And then we finally got to talk because he really didn't talk much because he was trying to get us all off the side of the freeway. So we get there and, and I thanked him and I went to pay him. He's like, no, you don't have to pay me. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm going to pay you. He said, no. He said, I've, I've been hearing about you. He said, no, I'm going to do this tow for free. And, uh, and I, you know, I thanked him and, and he, he gave me his, you know, company card and wrote his cell phone number on the back. And, and he said, well, my boss knows I'm towing this for free. He said, if you ever call, and I'm on shift, he said, I'll tow it for free as long as it's not too far and it take too much diesel. And uh, so I was really grateful that, you know, that this complete stranger that I never met this said, hey, I'm going to give you a free tow. And so, like I said, I took care of that lady's entire stressful situation for like nine bucks. And, you know, nine bucks is not a whole lot of money to me. But to that lady, that nine dollars was everything. And you've been listening to Larry Crawford. And by the way, to learn more about Community First Village, go to www.mlf.org. That's MLF for Mobile Loaves and Fishes. That's MLF.org. And by the way, the consequence of his generosity, of course, was the imitative power of his story. People see the story, they see the person doing something beautiful, and they want to do it too. And this country is filled with random acts of generosity and kindness. If you've got a story like it or a person like it in your community, and I know you do, send them and their stories to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Larry Crawford's story here on Our American Stories.
is our soldier divide, and there's a big one in this country. One of our regular contributors is Ben Sledge. Ben's a wounded combat veteran with tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, where he spent time in the United States Army, serving a portion of it under the Special Ops Command before leaving the military after 11 years of service. He's the recipient of the Bronze Star, the Purple Heart, and two Army Commendation Medals. Ben now works within the music industry for Heart Support, a nonprofit that helps millennials battling addiction, suicide ideation, depression, sexual abuse, loneliness, broken relationships, and a host of other issues. Here, he tells the story of his friend Casey, someone who helped him transition back to normal everyday life after his deployment. It was raining the day Casey died. 14 years earlier, you hunched, covering your face as sun-bleached gravel whipped through your hair and pelted your cheek. The incoming helicopters kicked gravel and sand into those stupid of us enough to wait, or curious enough to discover more. Men ran frantically while pointing and yelling. Some had black smudges across their face. You could only assume was tar or gunpowder. Then they hauled him off the helicopter while yelling to clear a path. Most people remember the first time they've watched someone die. Grandma in the hospital bed whose hand goes slack. The friend in the accident who exhales one last time while his eyes go wide. Yours involve blood and gurgling noises. The bleached earth turning a dark crimson while the stretcher drizzled the nearby ground like light rain. You always remember the gasping noises. It's that noise that sticks out the most. Everything else after that moment is blocked out. It's like trying to open a portion of your mind where you buried a key. But the key is in a safe whose combination you don't know. And you toss that safe to the bottom of the ocean. Never mind the fact you can't remember where you tossed the safe or what ocean it's in. Years later, it's the gurgling, gasping noise you remember. And then a rifle, two boots, a helmet, and dog tags. That's what you remember. Casey was there when he had those dreams. The ones about men dying. The ones where you remembered you were all alone in this big green earth. The ones where you felt abandoned and misunderstood. She would cradle your face and whisper, they're there. Our soul often remembers the darkest days of the moments that permanently changed us. As Casey was dying, these were the memories that flooded my stream of consciousness. Coming home from war, facing divorce, feelings of abandonment and loneliness, and the morbid death dreams. Why are you dwelling on some of the most horrific life moments now? I pondered. It wasn't until after her passing that I realized the same lessons she always taught me. She was now teaching me in death. For much of my life, I believed the trauma I endured would affect everything I touched, would last forever, and that some of it was my fault. I helped blow up my marriage being gone all the time. Couldn't stop thinking about how alone I feel. I had no one, and I deserve that. You wonder how to go on with life and whether you'll ever be okay. It'll get better, is the platitude you hear offered by others, but they don't know what to say either. Casey was different. The word she spoke over and over again was a simple one, endure. 
It was as if Casey was my personal butler, Alfred, and I was Batman. In the movie The Dark Knight, Bruce Wayne seems stuck in an impossible dilemma and asks his butler for personal advice. Whereas others might have given him a pat on the back and said, Buck up, kiddo. You're the Batman. And you're rich. Alfred instead delivers one of the most powerful lines in the movie. He tells him, Endure, Master Wayne. Take it. You can make the choice that no one else can make. The right choice. People these days fall apart over seemingly nothing. They didn't get the job they wanted. Life isn't going according to their five-year plan. They're not married or in a relationship. They feel they lack purpose or direction. Their waiter got their order wrong. Much of the Western world seems to lack resiliency and the ability to endure hardship, it would seem. We don't know how to process grief, let alone the crises life throws at us. But sorting through our disappointment, grief, and trauma is paramount to becoming a whole and resilient person. In their book, Option B, Facing Adversity, Building Resilience, and Finding Joy, Adam Grant and Sheryl Sandberg explain, we plant the seeds of resilience in ways we process negative events. After spending decades studying how people deal with setbacks, psychologist Martin Siegelman found that three P's can stunt recovery. One, personalization, the belief that we are at fault. Two, pervasiveness, the belief that an event will affect all areas of our life. And three, permanence, the belief that the aftershocks of the event will last forever. The three P's play like the flip side of the pop song, everything is awesome, everything is awful. The loop in your head repeats, it's my fault this is awful, my whole life is awful, and it's always going to be awful. As Casey went blind and could no longer walk up the stairs at my house, I knew it was time to endure grief and pain once more. So I gently laid her in the back of my car and drove to the veterinarian. I guess I forgot to mention, Casey was my 16-year-old cat. I never wanted to be the guy who gets overly attached to an animal, let alone falls to pieces when they die. To some degree, it's unhealthy. There are children dying in Syria we need to be more concerned with than Fluffy or Fido. However, when I shared this sentiment in the midst of my grief with my best friend, he reminded me of something. It scares me how attached I am to my dog sometimes. I think the reason why is that with him, it's a different relationship. With my dog, I never have to wonder where I stand with him or if I've let him down. That's a lesson I'm taking to heart to love my wife and friends better. What lesson did Casey teach you? Before I got remarried, I lived with a close friend who played football for Dartmouth. He too had a cat he was obsessed with. We always laugh about an evening we invited two girls over who made fun of us for looking like professional athletes that had an uncanny affection for cats. My old roommate's cat, named Gus, died tragically about a year ago. When he shared what he learned, I realized his lesson was the same as mine. Resilience. His cat was an anchor when he moved to another state, found himself in a job he hated, lived alone, and wanted to kill himself. That cat kept me from killing myself. Who the hell was going to feed him if I was gone? Then over time, I realized he was weathering the changes better than I was. If my cat could make it, so could I. When Gus passed away, despite his grief, he took that lesson to heart and endured. He continues to do so in the midst of some of the hardest situations and decisions he's faced. Perhaps that's the great joy we often miss 
and the animals we love, the lessons they teach us that help us grow stronger. Whether that's loving someone when they don't deserve it, resilience, patience, or even suffering well, animals seem to endure suffering better than humans, whereas we ask why, they crawl off to be alone. When I arrived at the vet to put Casey down, I tried not to cry in front of the tech. When it came time to put her down, the vet asked me, are you ready for this? That's when the memories I described in the beginning flooded back. There was Casey, cuddling my face when I felt sad and teaching me to endure. I was in Afghanistan and Iraq. I sate through a knowing smile. I've seen worse. An hour later, I buried Casey in my backyard while it rained. I buried her in the spot where there was no grass growing and most of the vegetation was dead. I figured it was appropriate because even in her death, where she's buried, reminds me that where there's no grass, there's always an opportunity for some to grow. And great job on that, Faith. And thank you, Ben. Ben Sledge's story, his cat story, Casey. Here on Our American Stories. American stories, and our next story is about finding meaning and purpose through acts of sacrificial service. Tracy Grant is the deputy managing editor at the Washington Post. She's also the author of the essay that appeared in the Washington Post, I Was My Husband's Caregiver As He Was Dying of Cancer. It was the best seven months of my life. Here's Tracy to share her story with us. Almost 12 years ago, my world, as I knew it, ended. My husband of 19 years, the father of my two sons, was diagnosed with terminal cancer. Over the course of seven months, Bill went from beating me silly on the tennis court to needing my help to go to the bathroom and bathe. It was the best seven months of my life. Maybe I don't actually mean that, but it was certainly the time when I felt most alive. I had lived 42 years before I heard the phrases, we have a problem, multiple metastases, on the brain, probably in the lung as well. I had become a respected professional a responsible and I hope beloved parent, but I had yet to discover the reason I was put on this earth. During those seven months, I came to understand that whatever else I did in my life, nothing would matter more than this, even if I didn't really understand what this was. For me, There were no more bad days. I discovered that the petty day-in, day-out grievances of an irksome co-worker 
a child with the sniffles, or a flat tire pale in comparison to the beauty of spontaneous laughter, the night sky, the smells of a bakery. Some days were more difficult than others, but there were moments of joy, laughter, tenderness in every day. If I was just willing to look hard enough. I found I could train myself to see more beauty than bother, to set my internal barometer to be more compassionate than callous. But I also discovered that with each day, my heart and soul grew more open to seeing this beauty than at any other time in my life. When she was running for president during a town hall, Hillary Clinton was asked about her faith. And I read a treatment of the prodigal son parable by the Jesuit Henri Nouwen, and there was a line in it that became just a lifeline for me. Practice the discipline of gratitude. I had never thought about the lessons of Bill's illness in quite that way. But as soon as I heard it, I realized that's just what I had been doing during those months. I had been training myself to be grateful. Caregiving has gotten a bad name in this country. Being a caregiver to someone you love can be transcendent, a gift. And yet, for too many, it feels like punishment. There are lots of good reasons for this. Among the nation's more than 34 million unpaid caregivers, Many are aging and ill spouses caring for equally aged and sicker mates. For some, caregiving lasts for years rather than months, and respite services that would allow for a little time off from the relentless nature of the challenge aren't always in place. I concede I was very fortunate when my husband became ill. I was young and healthy. I had a great employer who provided even better health insurance. My bosses basically told me that my full-time job, for which I would continue to be paid, was to care for my husband and children. In the early days after Bill's diagnosis and brain surgery, being a caregiver called me to be the best reporter I knew how to be. There was a heady sense that I could out-MacGyver this disease by my resources, intellect, and grit. I found clinical trials, talked to oncologists in Texas, Pennsylvania, and New York. I knew which chemo drugs would work in the brain and which would work in the lungs. I was relentless in making doctors and insurance companies answer my questions. It gave me a sense of purpose and it gave Bill great comfort and more than a few chuckles to overhear me reading the riot act to some poor insurance rep who had told me that a treatment wouldn't be covered. I don't know what it feels like to be an athlete in the zone where every pitch is a strike, every shot a three-pointer, but those months were as close as I believe I will ever come. I was at the top of my game. In the latter days, 
Being Bill's caregiver meant being fully present for as many moments of every day as possible. Even ones where my formerly strong, independent spouse needed the type of help that would have seemed unthinkable months earlier. Well-meaning friends suggested antidepressants or sleeping pills to help me take the edge off. I can certainly understand needing to do that, but I didn't want to be less than 100% present. I didn't want to miss or forget a moment. When it became hard for Bill to navigate the stairs, he slept on the family room sofa and I slept on the floor next to him at the ready if he needed help getting to the bathroom in the middle of the night. It was in some ways reminiscent of having premature twins and never sleeping more than a few hours at a stretch. With the boys, I prayed for the day I would no longer have to tend to them in the wee hours. With Bill, I prayed for another month, another week, another day of being able to have him to care for. When I couldn't sleep during those nights, I took to praying the rosary and then began praying it daily even if I had no difficulty sleeping. For me, the repetition of the Hail Mary while caressing pearlescent beads helped slow my breathing, calm my mind. I came to feel naked if I didn't have beads in a pocket or a purse, within easy reach while scans were performed, IVs dripped, test results waited for. Even during the moments when I was most angry with God, I found I could talk to Mary on the theory that she knew a little bit about being challenged by God. Today. Saying the rosary is part of my morning ritual, done while walking the dog and bearing witness to the moment when night relinquishes its purchase to a new day. During Bill's last weekend, we had dinner together. At that point, we no longer held on to the illusion of MacGyvering our way out of this predicament. Although we still believed that he might come home one more time. We sat by side on his hospital bed, sharing a Subway sandwich and watching television. Later, a relative visited, and I noticed almost reflexively to myself that she had changed her appearance, and not in a favorable way. It was the kind of thought I'd usually keep to myself, but just then, Bill voiced exactly what I had been thinking in that eerily intuitive, ruthlessly truthful way he had, and I found myself laughing out loud. I could live with this man, even as compromised as he is, needing as much care as he does for the next 40 years, I thought to myself. He would be dead in four days. A dozen years later, I haven't started a foundation to cure cancer. I haven't left the news business to get a medical degree. 
I work, I pay the bills, I try to be there for our sons. I will never again be as good a person as I was when I cared for Bill. I will never again have that high a purpose. But every day I try to find and put into practice the person I was during those seven months. I try to be a little less judgmental, a little more forgiving, a little more generous, a little more grateful for the small moments in life. I am a better person for having been Bill's caregiver. It was his last, best gift to me. And what a gift for all of us. What a love story, folks. What a beautiful story. And again, it's Tracy Grant's story. In a way, her husband Bill's story, at least his final days. I was at the top of my game as a human being, she said. Tracy Grant's story, Bill's here on Our American Stories. <laughs> 